Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 617. It is a Friday. I am stoked uh, because I am t- I was tired this week, and I'm finally coming to the end of the longest week I think ever in the Survival Podcast. i got the move coming up. And I'm, I've done this week uh, nine shows, plus today, plus another one. Why? Because I'm going to go away for a week, and I'm going to leave shows with you while I'm gone. I'm going to tell you about four badass interviews coming up that you guys are going to be hearing next week and even into Monday of the following week. I've got like Monday and Tuesday normal shows, and then um, Wednesday through Monday of the next week. You will not go without a show, even though I'm going to be in the middle of... Uh, Getting all my crap either given away or getting up there or transporting stuff or whatever. I'm not letting you guys go without a show. You can tell I'm full of energy. My voice has been back for a week. I feel good. And uh, it's Friday. And that means I actually am going to get a day off. And uh, after this week, I need it. And what are we going to do today? Today is Friday. That means it is time to do your show. This is the audience's show on Friday. Um, sort of on Mondays with the with the emails and stuff like that. But this is where you guys call in. And you pick up that phone and you dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-T-6-Blah. Too excited for Friday. 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. T-H-I-N-K. Leave your message. You get about two minutes to do that. So uh, know what you're going to say when you call in. Make your call like the ones you hear today. There's a good chance you get on the air. I'm up to calls from about two weeks ago. If you called in longer than two weeks ago and you haven't heard your call on the air yet, uh, you may want to call back in. It may not have gotten through for one reason or another, generally due to technical issues uh, like driving with the window open when you make your call or calling from a cell phone from uh, a remote ditch somewhere in the, uh, in the uh, lands of Afghanistan or something like that, where I couldn't hear what you were saying. Otherwise, you'll probably be on the air if you make that call. It may take a few weeks, but I will get you here if I can do it. Uh, so before we get into your call today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, Emergency Essentials. Um, I love Emergency Essentials because I consider their catalog to be kind of prepper porn, man. You can sit down and look at all that and go, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. Uh, great long-term food storage products is what they're mostly known for. Some other great material as well. Make sure you join their newsletter. They send out a lot of really great, rich information. Check out their website, uh, which is located at BePrepared.com. Again, BePrepared.com. They also have a lot of articles getting started with your prepping, putting together plans. They have a food calculator. It's a great website beyond the stuff they sell. Make sure you go to BePrepared.com. Bookmark that. Put it in your social bookmarks. Put it in your normal bookmark, whatever, just so you can get back there once in a while and check out what's going on uh, because they are a great provider and a great source of information. Sponsor of the day number two today, Western Botanicals. And Western Botanicals is and will always be my source for everything herbal. Everything from when I need something prepared for me, uh, like the 
herbal throat spray that uh, Kyle Christensen over there sent me, which got me through the laryngitis and everything else and helped me keep doing the show. Uh, to, if I just want individual herbs that I can't grow or can't find or I'm in so short supply. If it's an herb and it's legal, you can buy it there. I think that would be about the only limitation. There's a lot of things you can find at Western Botanicals that are very hard to find anywhere else. Uh, they also, if you're a member support brigade member, make sure you make a phone call to them with the code that's in your member support area. They have a preferred membership, 25% off everything. That costs $50 a year. Well, the member support brigade costs $50 a year. You get their preferred membership free as an MSB member. That pays for it all at once. It's a good reason to be an MSB member and a great reason to do business with Western Botanicals. Uh, next up, want to remind you, do connect with me on Facebook and Twitter. At Facebook, it is facebook.com forward slash survival podcast at twitter i am the survival pod c because the survival podcast wouldn't fit and some jerk had already taken survival podcast so the survival pod c on twitter at the survival pod c shout out to me today i'm going to make today a shout back on twitter day if you shout out to add at the survival pod c today i'll shout back to you uh last but not least do consider joining the member support brigade you get great discounts all that good stuff that i always say you know what it is by now do want to remind you though that I do take silver for the MSB one ounce a year that's a big discount even with silver at over 30 bucks an ounce uh, you can have the, the same discount I give away on occasion to uh, people that pay by PayPal anytime you want by mailing me an ounce of silver you can mail me five ounces of silver and I'll set you up for five years it's up to you how much you want to you know how much you want to spend any given time uh, and that can either be one ounce of any type of 999 pure silver or a dollar fifty in pre-64 coins you can get a dollar fifty for the MSB you're just gonna have to send me you know three half dollars or uh, you know six quarters from 1964 or back all right uh, with that we've got everything wrapped up uh, one more thing on the members brigade I wanted to uh, throw this out to you if any of you guys out there have blogs or things like that or any kind of website where one of the things you do is author and sell ebooks these have to be your ebooks you have to have the rights to them uh, if you'd like to donate one of your for sale ebooks to the member support brigade to get exposure it's a great way to get exposure Jason Akers from the self-sufficient gardener uh, donated one of his ebooks that he normally sells to the MSB and he says it's worked out very well for him so if good quality ebook on any subject you know, related to self-reliance, independence, liberty, growing your own food, making your own beer, whatever it is, if you'd like to donate it, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and uh, let me know what you got, and we'll see if we can get it in there. If you don't hear back from me, hit me again. Sometimes spam filtering uh, even kicks my ass. On spam filtering, one more announcement today. Wow. Uh, this is going longer than I planned for the intro. But whenever you send me an email, if you'll include the word survival, podcast, or spirico somewhere in your email... I will get it out of the spam filter no matter what happens. I always search for those three, Survival, Podcast, or Spirico, any one of those. I figure if you're emailing me about the show, you'll probably have one of those words in there. All right, before we take your call, I do have to give you the announcement because I think you're going to be blown away by the list of people that I'm going to give you starting Wednesday next week running to Monday until I get back um, with interviews. Uh, we're going to have Frank Sharp Jr., who is the head of Fortress Self-Defense Consultants on, uh, and not an infomercial about his company. We're going to talk about self-defense, and he's going to give you some ways to be armed on an airplane uh, without having yourself disarmed by TSA. 
that are just awesome. I've had this question a bunch. Best answers I've ever heard from anybody on that one. And that's just one thing we're going to talk about. Jason Hakers from the Self-Sufficient Gardener. He's going to be on. We're going to talk about plant histories and all kinds of really cool stuff. Uh, Jason taught me a lot in the interview. It's already been done, ready to go. We'll air on Monday, not next week, but the week after. Uh, Steve Palmer from Shelf Reliance. I'm interviewing him today. Uh, he's going to talk about why he founded the company, what he sees as the biggest threat to our security, great stuff like that. And last but not least, and this one's a huge one, Tanya Sawyer from Colorado Aquaponics is going to be on to talk all about setting up, setting up aquaponics systems, all the considerations, why you want to do it. Great set of interviews coming up. But now, let's get to your first call of the day. Hello, Jack. This is Patty, and I live in North Alabama. Uh, first of all, thank you for all you do. I'm a beginning prepper, and I heard you mention Hugo Culture on episode 604. I think it's spelled H-U-G-O-C-U-L-T-U-R-E. I couldn't find any info on the Internet and wanted to know if you could tell me where to find more info. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Okay, well, I started out with an easy one there. I mean, the big problem is you're searching for it spelled the wrong way, which I can completely understand, because if you ask me off the cuff to spell it, I don't know that I'd get it right. I haven't memorized it with look, say, whole language, which is the way my generation was taught how to learn to spell. Uh, but it's not even an English word, so that makes it even more complicated. But it is spelled sort of like it sounds. It's H-U-G-E-L-K-U-L-T-U-R. H-U-G-E-L-K-U-L-T-U-R, Hugel Coulter, uh, with a K, no C in there. Uh, the best place to get more information about it, and there's not a lot of information online. There's a couple videos from Paul that are available on YouTube, and if you just Google Hugel Culture spelled the right way, you'll find those videos right at the top of Google. Um, at the very first result, you'll find uh, an article on Rich Soil that Paul did about it. And about the fourth result on Google, you'll see a thing from permies.com, which is Paul's forum. As you can see, Paul's about the only guy really putting out a lot of information on this. Uh, but if you go to, to uh, that fourth one, you'll find a thread on permies.com. And I'll link to all of these for you today from the show notes. And uh, that thread has uh, probably about six pages of people that have done it in various different ways and the results they've had. So I think that would be the best. I also have Paul... Coming back on the show, I'll be interviewing him on a Saturday. We had to do that to make our schedules work. So it'll probably be the 22nd of March. He's coming back on, and this installment of Paul Wheaton is all going to be about passive irrigation and tons on Hugel culture. And we talked about both of them a lot in his past two interviews. So the last two interviews with Paul are going to be worth listening to. Uh, the middle of one and the beginning of the other, we talk about Hugel culture. Got more stuff on Hugel culture coming later in the show. Last question, I think, is actually on Hugel culture. So I won't say anything else about it right now, uh, but hold on and I'll get to it. Uh, what I do want to point out though is had you gone to the uh, to the uh, the website and looked at the show notes from uh, uh, that particular episode you heard it in, it would have been in the show notes, how to spell it, or there would have probably been links to it, and I'm not picking on you nothing. I want everybody to hear this. Please realize that this is not just a podcast, especially you iTunes users. You guys go there, you plug in your iPod every day, and it updates it for you. There's a website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Every single episode has a massive amount of resources and links that go along with it. So do get by the website once in a while, especially 
especially when you have you want to make a comment, you want to tell me off, you want to, you know, go to the site, do it in the comment section, unless you're telling me off ignorantly or something like that. If you're going to be insulting, send me an email. I can take insulting emails. I don't take insults well in public, and don't insult anybody else on the blog. I will ban your ass if you insult people on my blog. Again, not to the caller, this is to everybody. But get by the site once in a while. There's lots of rich information available there uh, beyond what you hear on the air. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Rational Husker from the forum. I've got a question to you about buying land and the decision about when to take the plunge to do that. I hear you talk all the time about... Um, you know, the, your prepping depends on whether or not you're going to stay in your current home for 10 years or so. I'm definitely not going to be in my current home longer than four or five years. Um, <clears throat> I have opportunity. Um, we're not underwater or anything like that. I could probably get out of my home in pretty decent shape. The market is decent here. Uh, but I don't feel great about renting right now either, even though economically that might be the best thing to do short term. I would just be really nervous about not having something to call my own in a uh, shit-hit-the-fan type of situation. So what kind of things can I consider? Um, any move right now I might make would be potentially temporary. My long-term job prospects just kind of depend on some education and training and, and my current job. So it's all kind of up in the air, but yet I want to prep. Help me out the best you can. I know this is not a clear-cut or easy-to-answer questions, but what types of things should I be thinking about? Again, I've got some equity in the home. Certainly, I'd probably lose some money on it, but I would get everything down back. Um, but uh, anyway, rather than belabor the point, I'll just let you run, run with it from here if you can. Thanks, Jack. Well, it's not a cut-and-dry easy question. That probably means it's a question worth answering, so don't feel bad about that. This is one of those times where I do wish I did live shows once in a while because it would be a better call to have with you on the air because I could clarify some things and all. But let me, uh, let me answer the question in general, and then let me answer the question as best I can with the information I have for you. Number one, the time you start looking for land is when you financially can afford to. Um, you need to be able to either make your current house payment uh, with, without thinking about it for six months without a job, uh, or you need to be uh, able to say it's paid off and I don't care. Um, and then there's still some situational things there. If you buy a second place and your answer to um, what would you do if you'd lose your current home is I'd pick up and leave and go to my second place, and the second place is much more affordable and is a place you could actually go to and live. It's not a piece of dirt. It's actually a piece of dirt with a place to live. Well, then maybe you accelerate that a little bit. It's all situational. To quote Gary uh, Vaynerchuk this week when I asked him, how do you find your passion? I'm not Yoda. Uh, so I can't say for you when this decision is right. I can tell you this, when you're $30,000 in credit card debt and $50,000 in student loans and you have a house payment, it's not the time to buy a second piece of property. you got work to do before you do it. Um, it might be the time to find a cheap rural piece of property, go there and live and pay off your debt. But that's individual decisions. I'm taking this question to be buying a second piece. Renting, though. Let's look at the rental option for the caller. So let's say you go out and you do sell your home. You get out from underneath it and you do pull some equity out. And you put some cash in the bank and you start renting and you do save money. And now you go out and you buy that second place. If Again, if that second place is a place you can go live and something happens, you're in the best scenario you can be because the worst thing you're going to do is break a lease. 
You know, and, and that's if it's the, the situation's bad enough, you have to break a lease, and it's a bad situation for everybody. That person leasing you the home's got bigger problems than to worry about you. If it's an individual situation, yeah, there's a penalty for breaking a lease and all. And what you do is you say, no, I'm not going to be on the hook for a year of house payments. No, we're not going to do that. I'll give you first month and last month, and if I have to break the lease due to some sort of emergency, I'll give you 30 days notice, and I pay one extra month that I don't live here, and you keep my first month last month. And most landlords that aren't stupid will take that, and the last thing you want to be is a tenant to a stupid landlord. So it's I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying there's a different way to see this than not being comfortable as a renter in times like this. So what that may involve is a reasonable assessment of the, the, the potential sale value of your home by a qualified real estate agent, finding a piece of property before you list it for sale, buying it, because it'll actually be easier to buy when you own your home than when you've divested it, because your credit score is higher as a homeowner, because banks are stupid, Getting and then putting the house up for sale and moving in. But you have to have a very clear-cut plan, and whatever your real estate agent says you can get for your home if you want to sell it quickly, take 10% off of it. And I'm not saying you won't get what the agent says, but don't bet the farm on it. And you might be looking for a new farm that you're betting on it. Then you've got your second piece of land. You've got your rental property. And if, if you've got a bug out, you're bugging out of a rental property. If you're just talking about buying a piece of dirt, you're in a totally different situation. Because when you first buy a piece of dirt, that's what you've got. You've got a piece of ground, an acre to 20 to 200. It doesn't matter. It's just dirt. And until you build something on it, it's not really that great of a fallback location. You can start shaping it. You can start working it. You can put a, contain, a shipping container on it or bury one in the ground. You can get a travel trailer that you tow out there. You can have a power people come in and run a power pole for you, and you can put a well in. And Then you've got, of got something, but, man, it's still not a permanent structure. So you have to balance all of that with your life. Now, the job travel thing also... Uh, worries me a little bit. If you're pretty sure that I'm going to live in the southwest or the northeast or the southeast or, or whatever, uh, then you can buy a remote property and anywhere you move in that region, that remote property still, you know, if you pick the right area, it can be kind of central located to wherever you might move. If you might move from Florida to Washington State, well, then that remote property in the North Carolina mountains isn't so attractive anymore. So that's something else you have to consider. Now, does it mean you, you don't buy? No. Because the property values keep going up. I don't care what the TV tells you, the power of your dollar goes down uh, with, with, with inflation, and this is occurring. And if you ask any single mom trying to stretch a family budget at the grocery store, she'll tell you that the statements that inflation isn't real are lies. And she will be correct. And she's smarter than the economist, because unlike the professional economist that makes a ton of money and doesn't really notice 2 to 3% inflation on a cereal, um, the single mom does. So if you want to know about inflation, talk to a single mother. So that inflation is really hitting real estate. And you say, but Jack, look, real estate's selling for nothing in Michigan, around Detroit. They're bulldozing houses and turning them into farms. That's not the real estate we're talking about. If you look in rural America, the price of real estate has not gone down much at all. And in many places, it's gone up. If you look up around where I live in Hot Springs, rural property costs more now than it did six years ago when I bought my place. And we went through the worst real estate recession in the history of the United States since the Great Depression. And it's still gone down. So you may still want to buy, but then you want to buy really smart. You want to negotiate shrewdly, fairly but shrewdly. 
You want to get the best buy you can. You want as much equity as you can going in. So if you ever have to turn that property, you have a greater potential to turn the property. I mean, these are just things that you can think about in general. You you have to tailor this to your own life. What's your risk tolerance? If you have a land payment of two hundred fifty bucks, okay, two hundred fifty bucks. That's it. Um, you know, you could go out and work at the Quickie Mart and 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 make that with a week a a month of extra work if you had to. Um, but you also have a house payment and you have all the other bills and take care of your kids and things like that. If you lost your job, would that two hundred fifty dollars really bother you? How much reserves do you have? What is your psychological ability to deal with that? I just told a story. I have a buddy who's lost a job. He has income for the next two and a half months. He has savings. He has four hundred one k. He could dip into if he had to. He has a spouse that makes just under sixty thousand dollars a year. He feels like the walls are closing in on him because he doesn't have what he used to have. If you're that person, you need to be in a really good place before you buy land. If you're like me and you're like, whatever happens, I'll just kick its ass and deal with it. You can accelerate that. So you have to look at emotionally, spiritually, internally, and not just numbers. But please look at numbers as well. Evaluate the whole thing and see what your plan for your life is. But do consider the fact if you move to a rental situation and it saves you a significant amount of money and it allows you to buy that remote property, that may work. If that remote property is where you want to live for the rest of your life. If it's just a bug out location, that's all it's ever going to be. If it's just you know a vacation slash hunting cabin that could be a BOL, uh, it's a little different than if it's a dream homestead where you're going to live out the rest of your life when you figure out how to get there permanently. Getting the property, paying for the property, having a structure, having a place to go is, is half the battle. And I'm going to say this to people that think this is really hard to do. Wherever you want to live out in the country, if you want to live, and again, for those that want to live in the suburbs and urban environments, I'm not putting you down. You stay there if you want to. For those that want to get out in the country, in every rural environment you can think of, you want to live in, and you think you need to be rich to move there, there's a couple thousand broke-ass rednecks that live there now, hunting and fishing most of their lives away, and having a better quality of life than, than, than you do. And if those broke-ass rednecks can do it, well, you can do it too. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Troy in uh, Denton, Texas. Just a follow-up to a uh, previous caller that you had, talking about uh, concealed carry reciprocity. Uh, one of the things uh, to, to point out is even in states that do have a reciprocity agreement, it's still necessary to comply with the regulations in the state to which you're traveling. One example is I'm a concealed carry in Texas, uh, but I travel to Arkansas, and a regulation that Arkansas has that Texas does not is that if you enter a uh, another person's private residence, uh, you cannot concealed carry without the knowledge and consent of the resident of that property. Uh, there's no such regulation in Texas, but in Arkansas you must comply with that. That's just one example, but there's you know there's many. So just uh, just to point out that uh, you need to check uh, with where you're going what the regulations are there. Uh, which may be different from where you are. Thanks, Chad. Enjoy your podcast. Bye. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't know about the uh, private residence thing. I, I don't think that's going to be a big problem for most people. Whenever I'm entering somebody's private residence, um, I know them fairly well. Uh, they probably know that I carry, and if I think there's any problem with it, I'm probably going to tell them. 
Um, I also would point out that concealed and concealed carry means concealed and keeping your mouth shut and your outline concealed and your gun concealed. And uh, I can't endorse any illegal behavior, but you know, if I was going into a place where I didn't feel safe for some reason, I might just keep my mouth shut. And uh, if the only way that that is ever going to be known that I'm carrying at that point is going to be if uh, the need for the weapon arises, and I'd rather fight that in court than be dead on a uh, dead on a platter or dead on a uh, on a morgue uh, uh, what do you call it a morgue stretcher. Um, but there is some other ones that makes me think of. For instance, in the state of Texas, you can basically have a sign up that says you can't bring your guns in here. But if it doesn't specifically state the uh, the license that you cannot bring a licensed uh, firearm, possession of a licensed firearm is not permitted. The sign doesn't apply. In another state, which states is that true, and which states is it not true? Uh, there's probably a lot of places, the states where maybe you can carry in a, a particular piece of uh, city or state property, and, and you can't. So you do need to check those regulations and not think that you've got a kind of a, a one size fits all, free for all pass. So great point. Um, there's really a great website out there you can check for a lot of this information. And that website is handgunlaw.us. Again, not .com, .us. Handgunlaw.us. Put a link in today's show notes. But I'm going to say this, and I, I don't give out that site a lot. And I, every time I talk about a reciprocity issue or traveling with firearms or what have you, um, I get people recommending the site. I'm going to tell you why I don't recommend it or any other site too frequently. Um, the state of stupidity, you know, that we live in. And so the state of stupidity represents any state with a government um, could change its law before handgunlaw.us knows about it. And you could take information off there, and the police officer arresting you won't care that you read it on the Internet on some website he's probably never heard of, especially if he's one of the anti-freedom officers. And there's a lot of really great officers out there. And there's some, there's some in the words of my, uh, my brother-in-law, who's been a police officer for 15 years, some of us are complete assholes and shouldn't have a badge. All right? And um, there's some of those out there, too. And that guy's definitely not going to care that you read it on a website somewhere. And there's probably a lot of officers out there that would be like, dude, okay, you're a concealed carry holder. You weren't causing any trouble. Uh, you just ended up in a situation where I had to talk to you. You even told me you had a gun. You clearly didn't know what you were doing wrong. Uh, on my discretion, I'm not going to do anything with this, but you need to take that gun, put it in your vehicle, and, and go on about your business. And there's other ones that will hook you up and take you off to jail. And you don't want that. And if they do hook you up and take you off to jail, you want to be able to not argue, keep your mouth shut, and when you get to jail, make your point to a judge and be told, sir, you're right, we apologize, go on about your life. All right. So my thing is, if you find something there and you think, well, that means it's okay, you may want to pick the phone up and call somebody within that state, like the state attorney general's office would be a great source of information for state-level law, and confirm it before you bet your ass on it. So it's not that I don't appreciate sites like that. I just sometimes worry that some state legislature might do something stupid, because that never happens, and uh, it might not get updated on the site on the day that you checked it. It might even be there tomorrow. Uh, so please confirm with the state you're traveling in anything you need to know as a concealed carry holder. And I think a call to the Attorney General's office, I'll be traveling in your state, I'm a concealed carry permit holder from the state of Florida. I understand that you have a reciprocity agreement with the state of Florida. Is that true? Uh, I don't know. Can you put me on the phone with somebody that does? When you get the answer, yes, sir, that's true, because you know that much is true, uh, you say, I'm going to be traveling in your state. I intend to carry as a concealed carry holder, as a legal carry holder, and I'd like to know, are there any particulars about your state that I need to know about, uh, such as postings or signs or areas where uh, my permit does not, uh, you know, does not 
does not apply. Um, for instance, uh, you know, entering private residence or private businesses, do they have to post it? Or once I'm going into a private residence, does it not apply? And most of the time, if you find an informed person there, they'll tell you. And at least you can say you made the call, record the call, record the time. And if you ever end up in a hairy situation, you can say to a judge, sir, I, I called this number and I asked and I did everything that I understood to be proper. I am a concealed carry holder. I wasn't doing anything illegal. And I talked to Jerry in the Attorney General's office at 5.01 a.m., you know, p.m. On, on, well, he wouldn't be there at 5.01 p.m., would he? Uh, 3.45 p.m. on Thursday the 14th. And I verified this before I traveled in your state. That's probably going to help you a lot. Now, if you go to a state like New Jersey, none of this applies because they're idiots out there. Uh, but otherwise, great point, great call. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is John from West Virginia. Uh, I'm going to share a little wisdom with you. My father just got out of the hospital. We don't know much how longer he has, but the one bit of wisdom he's given me well, I can't say the one bit of wisdom he's given me, but the bit of wisdom he has given me is if you don't shoot, you're not going to hit anybody. Thank you. Well, John, you've called in a lot, and uh, just from, I mean, the distinctiveness of your voice alone, you've become kind of uh, an honorary member of the TSP staff as, as part of the show. Every time I put you on, I can I can assure you there's people out there going, oh, it's John from West Virginia again as soon as I hear your voice. And um, I'm glad to have that, and it makes you kind of a brother, and I feel bad for you that you're, you're dealing with this loss now, and I don't know what to say, and I won't pretend to know what to say. I do have some thoughts on the advice that your father gave you, and that is, you know, you got to take a shot if you ever want to have a chance of making it. And it made me think of something I'd like to play now that doesn't seem like it really applies directly, but I feel that it does. And I think it applies to a lot of maybe the negativity that's been going on and, and, uh, out there that I've done a show recently about, about, oh, this won't work and that won't work and being an Eeyore. And uh, it's one of my uh, – I'm not a basketball fan. I'm not a basketball fan. I have no interest in basketball. There's one guy that played the game that's still a hero to me because of how he played the game and how he led his life, and that was Michael Jordan. And I want to, uh, I want to play this for you right now. Maybe it'll help. I don't know. But uh, this is what your father's advice says to me. And this is from a commercial that ran, I guess, about uh, 10 to 15 years ago uh, featuring Michael Jordan. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Now, some people would say that's just a commercial. And I think from a lot of people, maybe it would have just been a commercial, but... uh with that guy, I think it was really how he lived his life. You know, you just keep doing it, and sometimes it's not going to work. And you can be known as the greatest in the world, but the only way you're going to be known as the greatest in the world is if you've had plenty of failure in your life to go along with your successes. And in the end, people don't tend to remember your failures. They remember what you did successfully. And um, hopefully, you know, that's what you're getting from your dad here at the end of his life. And I'll bet you, since he's given you that advice... He's probably a guy that was always willing to take the shot. 
And sometimes he failed, and he probably felt really bad about it, but he probably clung to those successes, and hopefully he's passed them down to you. And, uh, again, I can't say anything to make it better. Uh, I don't know what I would do if I were in your situation. I really don't. And I guess one day I'll probably find out, and I don't look forward to that day. All I can say is God be with you, and take your father's advice. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Radar from the forum. Um, I have a 401k question, and the uh, the question is, um, is it uh, since 401ks are uh, tax deductible um, and not putting the 401k any money into it would be um, would leave you one tax bracket? Um, does it make sense that putting money into 401k will at least um, get you that money back from uh, the uh, it's about 2.75% or whatever um, that you would normally lose to the government if you hadn't put in. I don't know if I'm making any sense or not, but my employer said that they generally get that much if you don't put anything in at all. So the difference between the two would... Um, might just as well put that much in. Um, if if that makes sense to you, um, use the question on the air. If not, I'll have to try it again another way. Hey, have a good good evening. Thanks. Bye. That's a good question, and it might sound a little bit confusing, but I understand what you're asking, and I think if you're confused by anything, it's because your employer probably doesn't have a clue what he's advising you to do because he just got you this benefit and thinks you need to be participating in it. First, let me say this on the 401k. If you have employer match, um, considered uh, putting in as much as the employer match is up to the, up to the match, match threshold, even if they're only matching like 10 cents on the dollar because that's a 10% return immediately. So that's something that's going to lean me toward participating in 401ks no matter what because a 10% return on your money straight out of the gate is not bad. It's, it's better than you can do in a lot of places. So th that's kind of the, the exception here. Now, he, your, your employer's making some assumptions that I doubt he's done the math to figure out. He's assuming that you are at a certain tax rate and that you're close enough to the threshold that if you contribute a certain amount to your 401k, you'll go back across that threshold. Unless you're sitting in a fairly narrow space, on, one, on, the, on the positive side of that threshold, it's not necessarily the case. So you need to sit down and go, well, what, what is my effective tax rate? Look at your tax documents in the past. How much money are you paying tax on? And how close is that number to a threshold? Another thing is if your income's moderate, very low, and you have a lot of kids, you might be eligible for earned income tax credit. If your income is such that you're going just past what you would be eligible for an earned income tax credit, and you contribute enough to effectively reduce your income into that bracket, that might weigh more than pay for it. Okay. Now here's the other side of this. Even if those are true, if your employer's not matching a 401k, you can set up a conventional IRA or individual retirement account, and you're going to have a lot more choice. Inside a 401k, and this is my big problem with them, your employer will have for you five or six mutual funds. They'll have a, a large cap, a small cap, a mid cap, uh, a growth and income fund, a bond fund, a cash value fund, and maybe a few other funds. Generally, they're not very good. Generally, you could do better. 
Generally, you may want to uh, buy a gold ETF or a silver ETF or uh, a, uh, a rare earth metals ETF at some point because you know that's what to do. You may decide, I want to hold an individual stock. Uh, all of those things can be done very, very easily inside an individual retirement account and almost impossible to do inside an employer-sponsored 401k. So I don't like 401ks at all, at all, at all, at all, unless the employer is giving you a match. And, and that's just flat out, I'd rather control my own money completely than have a 401k. Now let's talk about another thing here. And I'm going to get financial advisors all up in a heat right now. Most of them are full of shit about their advice with this. There's two types of IRAs and there's two types of 401ks. And if your employer has a Roth 401k, same thing applies, but you may want to contribute to it. Um, and also look at the investment options. They might have some good funds that you'd be happy to invest in. If that's the case, fine. Um, you can go that route. But Roth versus conventional. In a Roth, I don't get to do any deducting today. Uh, but when I get my money out at retirement, I get 100% of it with no tax on it whatsoever. I like that deal better. And here's why. You've heard the old acronym, pay me now or pay me later. Conventional Roth and 401ks that are tax deferred are pay me later. Roth is pay me now. Now, if you're 57 years old and you're going to retire in four years... Um, it might make sense to do a conventional. Because you have a real good chance of knowing in four years what your tax rate's going to be, what the tax rates for everybody's going to be, and you're not going to have a lot of interest uh, to grow on your money in four years. If you're 40 and you're going to retire at 65, well, you got 25 years of interest on the money you're contributing today. If you're investing smart, and you're doing the right things, and you're, you're being creative, and you're pulling your money out of the mainstream market when the wells and whistles are screaming, get out, get out, get out, like they were in 2008, and a lot of stupid people just went, it's going to be okay, and they got hit in the face with a train. If you're not that person, you should have a very nice uh, interest accumulation by the time you're actually in retirement. The interest will be more than the contribution over that period of time. So you can either pay taxes on the contribution, and the interest later, or you can pay taxes on the contribution now and no taxes on the interest later. That's And the Roth always, always, always wins unless you're very, very, very old and everybody that tells you different lies to you. Now let me give you the financial advisor line and then tell you why it's bullshit. The financial advisor line is, well, right now you're a high-income person. You're sitting there making 30 grand, and they tell you the same shit. All right? Uh, maybe, you know, the reality is you are a high-income person. You're making 120 a year. Maybe your household's making 200 a year, whatever. You're at a relatively high-income threshold. Now, when you retire, you're going to be at a much lower income bracket. You're going to have a lower tax rate than you do today. So you can pay tomorrow's tax rate on today's money. So maybe you're at 36% or 33% today. You might have a tax rate of 18% when you retire, and you'll be in a much better situation to pay the taxes then than today. Here's the problem with that. It is bullshit because they don't know what the tax rate's going to be when you retire. We all look at this country and go, it's going bankrupt. Do you think our country's going to go bankrupt and just go, okay, we're out of money, we'll just start over? Do you think they're going to try to suck every penny they can from the society? And what do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're just going to let that tax rate for old people uh, 25 years from now stay at you know 14% or 12% or 10 whatever it ends up being, the effective tax, not the tax rate stated, but the effective tax rate you pay? Or do you think they're going to find other ways to tax you? 
on any money they can tax. Well, if you do a Roth, they don't get any, none, zero. And these people say, well, they could play games and change that, and then you yank it out, you pay the penalty, you squirrel it away into some other commodity they can't tax, and you, you deal with that when it comes. But as the system's set now, you're better off with a Roth than a conventional. And every financial advisor that gives you the same old story, just tell them you don't want to hear it. I'm serious. It's bullshit. Ask them what the, you know, when they tell you that and you're 40, and you go, okay, well, I might start drawing this money at 65. That's, 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 that's 25 years from now. So we're looking at the year, uh, 2036. Can you tell me what the tax rate is going to be in 2036? Can you tell me what a loaf of bread is going to cost me in 2036? When you say that, they might like get their little calculator out and start going, well, according to inflation, do you know what the inflation rate is going to be now? Uh, and between now and 2036, what it's going to be every year? Do you really know? Or are you just making some shit up because that's what they told you in relationship sales school? Don't do conventional tax-deferred accounts unless you're old. And I don't mean insult anybody, but you know what I mean. You're close to retirement. you got to be about 56, 55, 56 to make this work. And that's only if you're going to be drawing the money right at retirement. If you're going to be putting that money away for the, you already have retirement money put away, and this new money you're putting away is for when you're 85, if you're still around, you're back to square one. Roth, Roth, Roth. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Relatively new to the show, so I don't know if you've uh, breached on the subject about uh, health for the modern survivalist, uh, because one of the things that we know is going to happen when the distribution channels break down is the pharmaceuticals are going to be in short supply. And so the conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, and those uh, that can be controlled by methods other than than medication uh, should be addressed beforehand. Again, I really appreciate uh, your uh, help in getting ready for the end of the world as we know it. Thanks. I'm going to answer that question with, with two sides of an answer. The first one is going to be, your concern about health is valid. Uh, we have touched on it quite a bit. You probably want to look up my interview with the Patriot Nurse. Uh, if you just go to the survivalpodcast.com, there's a search box there, folks. And anything you want to know about that we've ever touched on in the past, stick the, the, the words you're thinking of in that box. You'll probably find something. And Patriot Nurse, if you Google that, you're gonna, or not Google that, if you TSP search that, uh, you'll find that interview with her. And we talked about a lot of different things with story medications, diabetes, all of this stuff. And it, it is a valid concern. And if you're diabetic, I didn't know this, but you can actually buy insulin without a prescription. You can buy an awful lot of it, and it does last beyond its expiration date. Uh, you want to keep it refrigerated and whatnot, but you can actually stock up on a large supply of insulin in case there's an ever a long-term failure. And I think there's probably other medications uh, where you can get creative about ways of getting your hands on it, and you, maybe you should. And I can leave it at that, and there's only so much I can say in regard to things like that. But let me answer the other side of this, because there's certain things that you said in there that really bug me when people say them. And I'm not coming down on you individually, but I'm coming down on this mentality of preparing only for failure. You said, one thing we know is when the distribution chain fails. Okay, one thing we don't know is what's going to happen. So I, I really get concerned when people, and you know, at the end, help us preventing for, prepare for the end of the world as we know it. I am helping prepare for the end of the world as we know it, um, but I'm not telling you what that's going to look like. And I'm going to tell you that in your lifetime, the world as we know it is going to end. 
And I'm going to tell you that in your lifetime, unless you're like five years old, the world as we knew it already ended and changed. The, the biggest thing that we have as human beings that's a constant is flux and change. And if you don't think the world as we knew it ended in your lifetime and you're my age or older, let me take you back to 1985. What was a CD in 1985 that didn't exist? What was an MP3 player in 1985? What was the internet other than things that geek kids like me got on to communicate with each other with chat boards where we had to actually dial the individual board? And I know there was a science level internet, but it, it, it you know, the, the real internet's 17 years old today. So it went around in 1985. What was a Twitter? What was a Facebook? What was a YouTube? What was an information technology career in 1985? What was computer programming about in 1985? Let's go back to 1970. What was a microwave oven? Society today, it looks nothing like society from 25 or 35 years ago. The world as we knew it ended. It ended in a positive way, for the most part. We've lost a lot of good things, too. The next big flux and change could be positive, it could be negative. It's probably going to be negative. We're reaching a critical mass about resource utilization, population growth, uh, finite resources, and the rest of the world saying, hey, United States, we don't just hate you, we actually like some things about the way you're living, we'd like to live that way too, and we don't get to keep 40% of the Earth's resources to ourselves anymore. Not that we should be able to. I'm not bashing us for it. I'm just saying it's a fundamental headlong reality we're running into. But this doesn't mean Patriots the coming collapse. This doesn't mean Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. This doesn't mean all the distribution chains fail. This means the way everything works changes. So I really want to caution everybody out there that's in this bunker mentality only. To get out of that is your only mentality. To have some freaking optimism. To say, yes, we might need to hunker down in the bunker. And we might get greater opportunities than any time in history. And I don't know which the hell one it's going to be. And nobody on the radio or the TV or somebody says, they're coming to get you. He doesn't know either. And if he tells you he does, he's full of shit. And I don't know. And that's why I don't tell you what's going to happen. Because I don't know either. So I'm going to prepare for massive change that results in opportunity for success and massive change that creates the opportunity for massive systemic failure. And I'm going to prepare for both of those and I'm going to function my life working toward the positive and have a fallback plan if the negative occurs. Think about a military operation. We're going to go in and rescue some hostages, me, you, and five other guys. And we've trained, we're a Delta Force unit, we've trained our whole life to do this one moment right now. We're going into harm's way. The whole thing could be wrong. Our intelligence could be wrong. The shit could hit the fan the minute we kick that door in. Instead of five guys in there, there might be 50. Instead of being armed with small arms, they might have the place wired ready to explode. All our intelligence could be wrong. So we don't go in there saying, well, when the shit hits the fan and the whole building blows up, we're all going to die. We go in there with the plan, executing the freaking plan the way it was designed from a positive aspect. If we didn't, we couldn't be an operator. We couldn't go into that building. We couldn't kick that freaking door down. We couldn't, in the dark of night with a set of NVGs on our eyes, go through that window and think, I can save this man or I can take out this target if it wasn't done from a positive viewpoint. But you can bet your ass we have, if it fails, we have a fallback plan. 
And I'd really like to suggest that the prepper community as a whole start living your daggone lives that way. And I'm not coming down on the caller, and he might have meant nothing by what he said. It just brought this out, and I need to say it, okay? So, caller, if I'm offending you, don't be offended, all right? I don't mean to offend you. But I do want this negativity the hell out of your life. And you say, well, how can I, how can I get rid of this negativity? We have peak oil. We have peak phosphorus, for God's sakes. We're going to run out of fertilizer. Uh, we, we, we have peak, peak water. The, 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 the conglomerations are moving to, to, to control the water supply. The whole world is going to change. And I'm going to tell you the same thing I tell the climate change freaks. The whole world has always changed. Those prepared for the change prosper. They build. They become more. It is time, in my view, for America to do something we have a very hard time doing. Look back, step back, while moving forward. And what I mean by that is remember the messages from our ancestors who had to do without. Take the lessons that they taught us with us and go back and learn the skills and learn the thought process and bring it forward into tomorrow. I don't want to go back to an agrarian lifestyle where when I get sick a doctor comes and bleeds me. I want an, a modern agrarian lifestyle for Americans. I don't want to put Twitter out of business and Facebook out of business and pretend they never happened. Because they're letting people in different countries, who governments have told each other, you hate each other, talk to each other, and the guy's going, I don't hate him, he's a nice guy. They're changing the world. The world is going to change in very positive ways and very, very negative ways. And with planning for your health, planning for your security, planning for your finances, planning for your food, planning for your water, planning for everything. Yes, be prepared for the whole thing to fall apart, but live your life with an intention that things will change, I will adapt, and I will prosper. Because otherwise, prepping is pointless. If all you're going to do is sit around and wait for the apocalypse... If it doesn't come, you're going to look really stupid. If you do what I'm saying and the apocalypse ever does come, God forbid it, but it ever happens, you're going to have a really good insurance policy in place. But if it's change and flux and people are suffering because they don't have enough money to buy what gas is left, or they can't deal with the fact that they can only get 70% of the food they used to be able to buy because of cost or delivery issues, and you're producing 30% of your own, you're going to look pretty smart. We have to prepare for success at all levels and failure at all, all levels. And we need to understand one daggone thing. If you had nothing else out of today's show, failure is not 100% all the time to be failure. Failure can be a 10% or 20% failure. Much of what we do is stopgap. So when we lose 10, 20, or 30% of what we've been intending to have, instead of suffering and like, you know, think about it this way. People lost money in their 401ks. They don't plan on drawing it out for 30 years. They were running around with their heads cut off. Oh my God, the world is over. You still have your job. You still can pay your bills. Your 401k, you're not even going to touch it for 30 years. That's why you were stupid in the first place and didn't pay attention to the balance. And now you want to go on talk radio and tell everybody how the world ended. You don't want to be that guy. If you're only preparing for failure, eventually you will be. If you're only preparing for success, eventually you will be. Those that prepare with a dichotomy for both success and failure and at multiple levels. That's a holistic lifestyle. And that's the way your grandparents lived. They did it without technology, but that was the thought process. We have technology that we can apply to that thought process. We should be able to prosper and take this planet forward 
today, not by forcing people to live our way, but by demonstrating the smart way to live. If you do something long enough and it works, other people will follow. Hell, we wrote a song about that. You hear it every day at the beginning and the end of the show. Great call, though. Don't take anything I said personally. It was really for everybody. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, I, was, I work a graveyard shift, and last night the uh, power was out most of the night, and I had the thought of uh, what could you do to uh, keep um, uh, the battery, you know, if you had a battery pack for a furnace, if that's possible, or... Also, uh, I remember you saying back a while ago that you would uh, do a show on uh, alternative uh, heating ideas. Anyways, just uh, wondering what you had your thoughts on that and um, what else you could do to uh, maintain heat during the middle of the night. Anyways, thanks. Bye. I think I've actually done a couple shows on uh, backup heating options and covered things like uh, like propane as a backup heating source, wood stoves, fireplaces with inserts, all kinds of stuff like that. On the uh, on the furnace issue, if you're talking about like a gas furnace, and when the power's out, the only problem you have is the actual the blower unit running. That's that's something that could be set up with a uh, you know with just a standard backup battery set with an inverter. And if that was your most critical component you wanted to set up, you don't even need solar or wind or anything. You could just uh, basically have a charger and a charge controller plugged in that keep those batteries topped off at all times. And you could probably run that for quite a period of time. And you could even wire in a little bit of lighting, maybe even directly off 12 volts, so you'd have a little bit of lighting around the house. And that would be a decent backup power system. If you're talking about a furnace that's electric heat, forget about it. You need a generator to run that. Uh, and then you need to look at a different source of backup heat for long term. Um, so I, I think the bigger thing, though, is to realize that when we're in emergency situations for heating, uh, especially short duration ones, which most of, not all, but most of them are, that we need to think along the lines of we heat ourselves in our general area rather than trying to heat the whole house. So, for instance, uh, one time I ended up at the bug out location with my wife, and it went down to seven degrees. Some of you guys who live in North Dakota are laughing. You guys are wearing t-shirts in the sun at 7 degrees. But uh, 7 degrees in Arkansas is pretty cold. So everybody everywhere turned their heat way up and uh, collapsed the grid in, in the Hot Springs, Arkansas area, and I'm, I'm pretty sure throughout much of the state. And uh, so the power went out about 11 o'clock at night. And again, the overnight low was around 7 degrees, and it got very, very cold in the house pretty quickly. We stoked up the fire. We pushed the... Um, the, the, the couch real close to the fireplace and I slept on the couch and Dorothy slept on the floor on a mattress on the floor uh, both with covers so that the couch was reflecting the heat to her and then the back of the couch was reflecting the heat to me and as soon as you got up out of that area and walked even to the back of the living room it was cold it was very cold but in that general area we were warm so a lot of times it's about thinking about insulating yourself insulating each other and, and, and that's kind of a short term emergency thing the best thing you can do for backup heat is to have, uh, you know, uh, gas-based, propane-based space heater type units and a reserve propane tank. That's the simplest, most economic. You can have a plumber come in to plumb the lines and set up the heaters and, and bring the tank in. And, you know, you can put in even a relatively small, uh, you know, uh, uh, propane tank and you can heat the, and because they're space level heaters, you know, you can close doors off and heat one room, and it can go a long time on not much propane that way, and get through maybe a long term like an ice storm out. And there were people two years ago in the ice storm. I put a picture on the forum of this ice storm, guys, and it's so lucky this ice storm was narrow. 
It was a narrow band. But the length of the band at one time was, was starting in El Paso, Texas and ending north of Boston. And it was a continuous pink band of ice. Again, El Paso, Texas to Boston, Massachusetts. It's back two years ago, and it moved straight across the country. And the place that it kind of welled up and really hammered was north northern Arkansas, uh, western Tennessee, western Kentucky. And there were people in that area, parts of Missouri as well, that went without power for between one to three weeks. And having propane as a heat source during that time would have been a great idea. Uh, even a generator on that duration, now you've got to get out, everything's iced up, you've got to get gas, I hope you've got a bunch of it stored. So a generator is a great plan for a lot of things, but it's a short-term plan. It's it's a multi-week plan at best. You will not be using a generator to run your home for a year if we ever have total systemic failure. And I think those that believe they will are deluding themselves and misleading themselves. One thing alone, that noise is going to attract a lot of attention and that level of a catastrophe that you really can't afford. Uh, but heating, if you don't have something inside the, 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 the place to burn, like a fireplace or a wood stove, you, then you got to bring something in like, like that. And I think that um, a wood stove, a fireplace, something like that is probably one of your better bets because you can burn anything if you have to. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you don't have that option. You can't really start a campfire in the middle of your, your, your apartment or your, your house. Um, another thing would be a rocket mass heater, which uh, Paul Wheaton, we're also going to have him on to talk about those as well. So uh, sometimes they're difficult to retrofit and make look good in a home, but especially with new home construction, if you build a rocket mass heater into something, you use a five-gallon bucket of wood to heat a house for a night, and it'll be toasty warm in the morning when you wake up. Um, it's kind of a takeoff of the old masonry heaters and uh, a little bit easier to construct and, to me, a lot more efficient. All right, that's the uh, best I can do for you on a short-term call. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Barry from Georgia. Um, real quick, uh, there was a the past show with uh, a couple that were uh, active duty Marine Corps asking about uh, uh, building a cabin up in the Idaho wilderness, and it, it kind of stuck with me, uh, just the whole whole scenario that, that was brought up. Um, it reminds me of a time when I was a kid, uh, my grandfather built a log cabin out of telephone poles, which, um, as we know, telephone poles will last a, a really, really long time. So um thought I would share that with them and find me something they could use uh, for the joints and, and everything else they used, uh, concrete. So um, appreciate Bye. Uh, you know, I worry a little bit about the creosote and especially the older telephone poles and all, but... Uh it would work, and it would damn near be impenetrable. I mean, it would be something that would stand up to tornadoes, honestly. There's not anything much tougher than a telephone pole. Um, I remember when my dad was doing uh, uh, the bootleg coal mining that sometimes he would go down to Pennsylvania Power and Light and uh, get poles, uh, pieces of them for free, and use them for mine timbers. They're probably going to be holding them out and up long after both of us are dead. Um, they just do seem to last forever because that's what they're designed to do. But again, the toxicity of what they're treated with worries me a little bit. Um, landscape timbers, on the other hand, are much smaller, easier to work with, very affordable. And there's a website you guys might want to check out, a guy that built a beautiful, beautiful cabin uh, using landscape timbers as a, a base named Jim Davidson. He's actually in Arkansas. And I'm uh, thinking about looking this guy up. Uh, in the future, and uh, once I get settled in up there and see if maybe he'd let me bring a video camera out there and video what he's done and, and, and get you guys some information on how to do this. 
And it also seems to me maybe to be naturally uh, a good thing to combine with Paul Wheaton's Wafferty structure. Um, if you think about it, Paul's structure is based on Mike Ayler's structure, which was the $50 and up underground house guy. And it's not really an underground house, and we all talked about the name and how it's a bad name and all. But it's an earth-sheltered home, but the inside looks like a log cabin. And the plan for that is, well, you go out and you take timber off of your property, use that for your interior structure, and then you earth-shelter that, put your glass roof in and all, and you end up with this great structure. Well, that's great until you start building your home in a place where there isn't a lot of timber to use. Well, a good source of very long-lasting timber that's affordable would be landscape timber. So I guess that would be another thing that people considering a little cabin might think about. And I don't know, when I first looked at this, I thought, you know, if you just wanted to build, let's say, like a 300-square-foot hunting shack or something, you could do a pretty dadgone good job using landscape timbers, and it probably wouldn't really cost very much. Um, so it's something to think about as well. Anyway, with that, we'll go ahead and take another call. Thanks for that call. Uh, I love it when you guys call in in regards to someone else's call. That shows the connectedness of the community. Uh, let's just keep on with it take another call today. Hi, Jack. It's Ronnie in Iowa. And uh, I'm one of those people stuck between a rock and a hard place, living in a mobile home, not a lot of storage. But, hey, you know, I'm going to do the best I can. What the heck? Uh, my question is... Um, you know, if things get really bad, you know, everything's going to get shut off. Uh, electricity, your water, everything's going to get shut down. Um, what do we do about body waste? Uh, that's kind of a, a problem there. So, hey, thanks for all the great work you do. feel like a little kid waiting for the next podcast. So um, keep up the good work. God bless you. Bye. It's a question I don't talk a lot about because it's really kind of a gross thing to talk about. It's not something that I don't want to talk about. It's not something I don't think about. It's not something I don't have a plan for. But it's also something that I have skinned. And I don't have to worry about very much. And that's because I have a well. I have backup power to my well. And I have a septic tank. Um, so my plan is to continue to use the toilet. And uh, watch the world burn around me. And hopefully uh, stay in my little island if it ever comes to that. I think short term, there's a couple things we can do. One thing we can do is we just get us a five-gallon bucket, a toilet seat, uh, a box of garbage bags that we keep inside that bucket and we don't use unless we uh, unless we need to, and uh, a couple bottles of that blue stuff you pour in a porta potty or a, like a like a, a, a bathroom for uh, the septic system for like a travel trailer, and we that's our little human waste disposal kit if we're ever in a short-term situation, and it's gross and we use it and it stinks, but you know every time somebody goes. Uh, we dump a little bit in there. I think the other thing that's highly underutilized and highly, un highly, you know, not understood for this is a shovel. Um, now, if we have a suburban environment where everybody's doing it, you know, it's it's an issue. But if you have a decent piece of land, a couple acres or more, and you dig a hole a foot deep and you you do your thing in there and you cover it up, it, it's pretty much gone. It really is. Now, do you want to do this in your garden where you're growing your potatoes, your tomatoes, and your peppers? No. Um, but I want you to think about this. There's a whole lot of creatures out there like bears and you know wolves and dogs. and These things crap everywhere every day, and somehow we're not overrun with it. The problem we get with human waste is when we're in these very dense populations, which I consider to be unnatural population densities. You see, I, uh, 
This is my bigger problem with cities than anything else. It's not just the crowds. It's not just the waste they produce. It's not just the resources they tax. My big problem with city life as a whole is I don't think that human beings were designed to live in that type of density. And I think when we try to live in that type of density, and if we remove the most basic technology, running sewers, we see how quickly it falls apart. We understand why we weren't meant to be this way. We are not meant to have a city block with a great big high-rise building and a thousand families live in one city block. Not meant to be that way. And hopefully, as a society, as a, as a, and I don't like the word I'm about to use, but I mean it differently than the globalists do, okay? So don't take offense to this. Hopefully, as a global society, um, we will come to a realization that sewage treatment plants are not the way to go in their current form that we need a more sustainable method of dealing with this problem as a society. But as individuals, I think the best thing you can do for long-term sustainability is put in a septic system if you have the option. Uh, your short-term solution is the bucket, the toilet seat, and the blue stuff. And that I got from one of Ron Hood's video on urban prepping. I think it's a great tip, and I'm sure he's not the first person to come up with it, but I want to attribute it to where I got it from, uh, from his Woodmaster series. Actually, his Urban Master series is where I got that. Uh, and, uh, and, and the other thing is a shovel. And understand that, you know, if you're talking a couple weeks, you can bury what you need to bury, and urine ain't that big of a problem, it's the solid waste. And uh, it's about as much as I'm going to say on it, because it's not good table conversation, and uh, we'll go on and take the next call. Hey, Jack, I'm kind of in a pretty supportive community, which I'm dealing with, but um, it's also wondering, um, with reducing your income how do you go about doing that without getting discouraged about you know your goals for buying land and that sort of thing thanks i hope to hear your answer on air that's a good question and i want to be clear about the times i've talked about income reduction what i mean and what i don't mean i don't mean that you're like i'm tired of paying the government so i'm going to go be penniless and then try to do everything i need to do it doesn't work that way. If we want things in this world, we don't get them given to us, and we don't consider it um, uh, a permaculture ethic with share the surplus by taking something that belongs to somebody else and then sharing it with others like ourselves. All right, When somebody else owns something, if we want it, we have to earn it, and that means we have to pay for it. And that means that there's a system out there, an economic system, that has good parts and bad parts. And I'm an entrepreneur. I have a company, and we do make money. We're profitable. If I wasn't, I couldn't afford to sell my home and move to Arkansas uh, with what I'm doing here. So obviously, I have no aversion to profit. I have an aversion to my profit being taken away from me and used for things that I don't want done. I spend my whole life now dedicated to independence, liberty, freedom. Freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of mind. The belief that what you do is yours and you have a right to it. And then the government takes a very large portion of my income every year and uses it to promote, promote social justice programs that do the exact opposite of what I talk about. So there's a couple things with income reduction here. One is you don't have to stop making money to reduce income. You can have an income. You can pay for everything you need. You're going to pay taxes on a lot of it. You can set up structures like corporations that pay for a lot of the things you need as business expenses and avoid any tax on that whatsoever and then you can once you get to a place where you don't need all your income do you know what you do with it you give it away 
You give it away to charity and you avoid taxes on it. Sometimes you want to give it to somebody that can't be considered a charity and you can't figure out any way and you have to bite your teeth and you pay the taxes on it, but you give it back. And instead of it going to fund a social justice program uh, to provide something you find despicable like a gun buyback problem, program, Uh, which was a cool one recently. Uh, the Austin, Austin of all places, freaking Austin, Texas, did a gun buyback pro program, and you could go in and get a food card for your gun. And and gun rights supporters stood out in front of the station. And when people were coming in, they're like, "Hey man, what are you selling?" You know, and the guy's like, "I got this." And he's like, "Okay, well they're going to give you a food card, so you can go buy some pop tarts and uh, and some things like that, some Cheerios. Uh, that's a four hundred dollar gun, and uh, you're going to go in there and get like fifty bucks for it. I'll give you a hundred fifty bucks for it right now, cash." And the, 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 the people bought up as many guns as they could. So there's creative ways to do everything. I'm trying to get you to think creatively here. Um, so sometimes maybe I might want to donate money to something like Permaculture Institute, and I can't do that as a deduction. So I have to bite my teeth and just consider it as, as charity, and that's money that could have been taxed otherwise had I spent it. You see? Uh, it was just income tax. Now, there is a point in your life where you might decide, I don't really need the income anymore, and I might actually stop doing things to earn the income and actually reduce my income and therefore my taxable rate. So that might be quitting a job and becoming a small entrepreneur and earning half of what you used to, but only spending a quarter of what you used to. So what I'm saying is for the actual cutting of, of, of inbound money, if you're ever going to take that step, because you want to, not because I said to, You bought your land first. You paid off your debt first. You've got most of your prepping done first. You've put yourself into a lifestyle where if the shit hits the fan, you can live. And if you can live with the shit hitting the fan and it doesn't hit the fan, you can live on less and you can live really, really good. So, you, you again, it's not like you cut your income and then go buy your land. You buy your land, you pay it off, and then you voluntarily reduce your income if it's right for you. But I would say to a lot of people, if you are a talented person, entrepreneurial type person, and you can keep cash flow high with, with passive income, give it away. Don't cut it off. Understand that there's a certain amount we need, and then there's other people out there that could do more with it than we can. And just hoarding it and stacking it up as gold in a hole in the ground, not that there's anything wrong with gold in a hole in the ground, but how much do you need? There's a point where you have to start looking at things and going, I have what I need now. And that journey might be 20 years before you get there. I don't want to lie to you or mislead you. And it might be hard work. What I've done to get to where I am in my life is, is the hardest life I could have lived. I could have had so much easier of a life if I just stayed an employee and did what I was supposed to do. But I did it the hard way. But now I get to reap the rewards of it. But as I move more and more to self-sufficiency and independence, then I take more and more of the surplus and give it away. And give it to who I choose to give it to versus who my government chooses to give it to for you. So when I say reduction of income, it's a multi-headed creature. And you decide how it works for you and when it works for you. Don't cut your income tomorrow um, just so the government gets less because you'll have less too. Use the system to extricate yourself from the system. The system is actually very powerful and it can do a lot for you if you know what it is and you understand what you're dealing with and you use it from the beginning and harness it for your own freedom from it. 
The problem with most people isn't the system itself, but they live in the system as part of the system with no intent or no understanding of how to ever exit it. And again, I don't want to exit the systems. And remember, it's systems with an S, not not system as singular. There's multiple systems. I don't want to exit the systems completely. I want to reduce dependence upon them to I'm taking from each one only what I choose and very little to nothing of what I need. And again, as that creates surplus, I do believe in charity, but I believe in it at my discretion. And I don't need to tell you who or how much. And I don't need to tell anybody who or how much except my accountant so I don't pay taxes on it. And I think that's a very good way to live. And I think we can be a lot happier as humans. And we can do a lot of good in the world that way. Um, but don't donate to anything until you verify what they do with that money. I want to bring up the Red Cross again. Uh, Brandon, who went down to Haiti and has done, done that many times, says he can save a child's life with four bucks. Four dollars. The Red Cross took in like nine billion dollars. And he's never seen a Red Cross sign in Haiti. And they took it in for that event. I'm not putting the Red Cross down. I'm just saying if you want it to do something, find a nonprofit that's actually doing what you want and support them. Don't give it under the banner of some big drive because it may never get there. Uh, not that what they'll do with it is wrong, but I believe that when we give, we should have a say in what that money actually does. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Bobo on the forums. I was listening to your podcast uh, recently about the uh, Google culture and the problems with uh, when you add wood below your garden beds or below your berry bushes or trees that for the first couple of years will suffer because there will be a lack of, of nitrogen in the soil due to the wood breaking down. Well, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I live in West Texas, so I want to definitely take advantage of having wood underneath uh, my different growing stuff. Uh, but I'm going to add a little blood meal to the wood itself before I bury it. I'm hoping this will actually mitigate that problem and encourage the breakdown and encourage the composting action of the wood faster. You see any negatives from doing this? Uh, so if you could, try to talk about it. I'd like to hear about it. Uh, I haven't heard anybody else think of doing this, but just thought it would be a good idea thought I'd pass along. Thanks again for the show. I actually think you're completely misunderstanding, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. What people like Paul and I are, are doing, when we talk about using wood in your garden at all, whether it's for mulch, whether it's for culture, for anything, is we're acknowledging that, yes, as wood begins to decay, it will take up nitrogen. But it doesn't mean that anything has to suffer as long as there's sufficient nitrogen. The other thing to understand is when you create a culture bed, you've got maybe 6 inches, 12 inches or more of dirt on top of the wood. So the wood can't get the nitrogen up at the surface where most of your early plantings roots are anyway. Uh, and in most gardens, when you have, let's say, a non-hugoculture bed, you're going to be using compost and organic fertilizer like, like blood meal or bone meal. Uh, both of those are ones I highly approve of. When I mentioned that to Paul, he didn't seem so keen on it. But I want you to remember this as I, as I go forward today. Paul Wheaton, Jack Spirico, anybody. We're not God, and we're not prophets, and we don't know all, and we'll tell you what we think and what we feel. Feel free to take and uh, use variations thereof on it. Think for yourself, do what you want, and see what happens. Now, if I tell you flat out, I did this, it didn't work, it sucks, don't do it, it's going to cause you problems, pain, and cost you money, you probably would be well-suited to follow my advice. But in this type of stuff, we're in a world of theory. So do whatever you want, and, and, and understand that, you know, you don't necessarily have to do exactly what Paul says or exactly what Jack says. On the other side of this, though, I, I do have some advice for you on this. Number one is the wood doesn't steal the nitrogen. 
it takes it up, it holds it, and it eventually releases it. So what you have to figure is if you put lots of nitrogen-based product in your garden, and I mean you know organic stuff, manure, compost, worm castings, the plants get some of it, and a lot of it goes down through the soil and washes out. With the wood down there, instead of the nitrogen eventually leaving, it's held, it's trapped. So instead of seeing it as taking away, I see it as trapping the nitrogen, if that makes sense. And then as it decays, slowly releasing it like a capsule back into the soil. Now I have a solution for hugel culture that may bother some people um, because they might see it as a waste, uh, but I'm going to tell you it's no waste. And it's a cast net. Uh, a farm pond or a, a park pond in a state where this is legal and a few pieces of bread and about, uh, I don't know, a few buckets of little sunfish. Um, and uh, those things, especially like with farm ponds you're trying to manage, if the population of bluegills gets out of hand, you're going to have nothing but a million little ones about three inches long. And the only way you're ever going to have um, nice plate-sized bluegills is to thin out that small population. And a, a few days or a few hours with a cast net and some bread, um, you could have a five, two five-gallon buckets full of the damn things from a few different places. Now, again, some people consider them a game fish. They have a limit of 50-day, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and if you wanted to long-term, you could put them in a freezer until you have enough bags of them to do this. But if you coated your wood with little sunnies before you buried it, well, there's a ton of nitrogen there. And they're going to decompose, and I would chop them in half at least, and throw them in there, and that's going to give all that nitrogen into that wood as that wood begins to decay. It's going to be a foot deep, you're not going to smell a daggone thing. Some of that nitrogen is going to be, there's going to be excess, it's going to be available to your plants as they grow. Um, so that would be one way. And then yes, fertilize your beds, especially in the first few years, but it's not suffering. I, that's the big thing, it's not a suffering uh, aspect. If you put the bed in without hugoculture, would you not have to fertilize it anyway? And the answer is you probably would. So see, the hugel culture is a way to catch the nitrogen, not as a, as a thief of the nitrogen. Um, and there's a lot of things that we could do like that. And there's other fish species that spring to mind for this. Uh, just down the road from here is a little park pond. And in that park pond are bullhead catfish, little bullhead catfish. And they're considered a trash fish here. I can go catch as many of them as I want. Uh, with a little hot dog and a, a couple rods and reels, I could go down there on any day and catch 25, 30, 40 of those things. And again, freeze them up until I was ready to do my hygge culture product project and toss them in there. And that's a wasted resource? Absolutely not. They're stunted. There's too many. There are, there's certain fish species that in these little ponds they overpopulate. And I think we could repurpose them for cat food or, or, or nitrogen in our soil. And uh, where's this come from? My grandmother. My grandmother every year would send me off to the little sunny pond, uh, real hard to get an eight-year-old to do, right, with a fishing pole, and go, there's 12 rose bushes out there. You need 12 sunfish. Bring them back and dig a hole and stick one under each rose bush. And she had the most amazing rose bushes in Pennsylvania. Big, giant rose tips that we'd make tea and jelly and stuff out of like that. And I believe those sunfish were a huge part of what made those roses such amazing rose plants, the old-style rose and burgooses. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we could do to, uh, to, to give that wood some nitrogen and understand it's not gone. It's stored and will be released eventually. I also feel that hugoculture beds long-term, and Paul may differ with this, and again, I'm going to have him back on. That show will probably air the 22nd of March. Um, I think they're best not for annual vegetables, but for perennials. Because uh, you're talking about something with a lifespan, depending on where and how much and what type of wood, 12 to 24 years or more that that bed's going to last. And uh, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity there to plant things like blackberries, raspberries, bushes, trees, vines. Uh, and 
even at the point where that Hulu culture bed is kind of spent, if you think about it, then your your perennial bush or shrub or tree, if it's got a life cycle that long, I think we got black helicopters, folks. I don't know if you heard that. I paused it because it was really loud. It's shaking my windows, man. Um, anyway, I don't know what they're doing. Um, but uh, if you got something with that kind of a life cycle, fig trees live a hundred years or whatever. By the time that bed is kind of done doing its thing, the root system on those those plants are so massive that they're going to need very little irrigation anyway. Um, and if you combine that with swelling, it would seem to me that you would solve the problem forever. And uh, you know, if you have a 25 year life cycle off of a stand of, of uh, blackberries, and you have a plan to like replace half one year and half the other year, what more could you ask for anyway? Uh, just my thoughts on the thing. Again, we can get Paul's words on it, but again, I want to reinforce when Paul says something like "Don't use newspaper uh, in lasagna gardening." You can take that for what it's worth. You can listen to his opinion. And uh, you can decide what you want to do with it. When I say do it, still do it, but do it with some cautions. And, and you want to listen to Paul, listen to Paul. Don't think ever that anyone anywhere has all the answers with any of this stuff. Because part of it's situational. Paul's entire opinion is based on the northwestern United States. And mine's based on the northeastern and south central. Uh, part, so it's different environments that we're working in. And different things happen in different environments. What do I do about slugs? I can give you some advice, but my, my problem with slugs is very, very limited. There ain't a lot of them around here. Um, get some ducks. See if the ducks will eat them. Put some copper out. Uh, you know, what have you. But, uh, but if you're in the Northwest, you've got big, mean, nasty slugs that'll tear up everything you have, and you've got to address that problem. So you're going to be more concerned about it than I am. And please understand that anybody with gardening, permaculture, all of this stuff, there's principles that work across the board. But think for yourself, and if you if something seems right or wrong to you, give it a shot, test it out, and see how it really works. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Steve from Indiana. I have a uh, permaculture question, Jack. I've looked all over the Internet, done the Google searches, and I can't find uh, anything appropriate that's edible that you can plant on, uh, you know, right on the edge of the lake. Live on a 10-acre lake. And there's so much frontage there. There's got to there's got to be an answer. Uh, if it can, you know, uh, hold back the washing, you know, handle erosion, so much the better. Uh, anything you could come up with would be great. Love the show. Good job. Uh, it's kind of hard to find a recommendation for something specific to solve a problem when the problem's not really a problem because no one's else trying to address this. Uh, basically, the answer is you can plant anything you want, and it'll probably do very well because there's going to be a lot of moisture in that soil. What I would caution you on is large trees with large root systems, depending on your impoundment of that pond. A lot of these ponds, if a tree root actually grows into the pond, it creates a leak. You know, so what type of the surrounding soil you have and things like that, you may you may you know may not want to put trees, large root systems there, especially on the side with the dam itself. If you're on the uphill side where the water's flowing in to the impoundment, it's it's a lot less of a concern. So if you want to plant trees around your pond, I would say plant them at the the basically the highest point on your your, your shoreline. Uh, because every all that water is flowing down toward the impoundment. Um, but, I mean, you can plant anything you want. Raspberries, blackberries, any kind of bush, shrub, uh, vine, or annual herbaceous style plants. Plant what you want. I mean, it's just, it's not a, it's not an issue. 
It's not something you have to worry about. I would also tell you consider planting things in the water's edge that are edible. Uh, you might be able to make taro root grow. Uh, you, it's not going to grow through the winter for you. Uh, you'll have to harvest it every year, but taro is the potato of the tropics. And if you're in a warm enough climate, it may do well for you. Cattails um, provide so many functions. Uh, you have to you know, control them and not let them get out of hand. They take over an entire segment of your pond, but uh, cattails are a great idea. You've got an edible root. You've got an edible stalk. Uh, you've got uh, usable tinder. I mean, cattails are one of the greatest food plants in the world and least utilized food plants in the world. Uh, there's a lot of aquaculture-type things that you could grow uh, that grow in water. Duck potato would be an example. Maybe not so much for you, but for waterfowl. Uh, so basically, you don't have an issue. There's no problem. Grow what you want, but really think about anything with large root systems because they could create a leak in your impoundment. But anything like a shrub, a vine, uh, a bush, anything like that, um, if you want it there and it looks right there and it fits your landscape, plant what you want. Um, you don't need anything special. Now, if it's really a wet area because of the pond, if it's a plant type that doesn't like its roots wet and doesn't do well in that environment, don't plant it there. So it's not really, what do I plant at the edge of a pond? It's what is the terrain like? Is it moist or is it wet? You know, is it on the low-lying side of the pond, and like when the pond's over full, it's flooded? Or is it on the side of the pond where there's just some seepage from the pond into the groundwater? So now you're looking at your plant types based on what they want for their individual root systems. And you can just basically look up the plant variety and say, does it like dry, well-drained soil, moist soil, rich soil? You want stuff that likes moist, rich soil. And anything that likes that's probably going to do very well for you. And with that, I am going to go ahead and wrap up today. These are great questions, guys. Keep them coming. Again, I'm up to about two weeks ago. If your question's older than that, three weeks or longer, I may get to it. There's some stuff in reserve back there. But you may want to call back because odds are what's happened is you called in and you got a bad cell connection or something went wrong. Your call was not usable. I try to get 100% of these calls on the air sooner or later. Uh, and we're, we're working our way forward. I still have a backlog. That's good. But keep them coming. I don't want to run out of these calls. I love doing these shows. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.